Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. As has been said, today is Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. Uh, So, you know, we set aside this week every year to commemorate the death and resurrection of Christ. Certainly it's not the only time uh, that we remember His death and resurrection, but it is a fixed time for that purpose. So, for the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. This week focused more on Jesus' death. Next week focused more on His resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read verses 1-8. through Follow as I read. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8. This is the Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. Alright, a little bit of background. Uh, About 51... A.D., Paul was on a missionary journey. He stopped in Corinth. Uh, This is recorded in Acts 18. He didn't have immediate success there, but um, after a while, many of the Corinthians believed in Christ, became Christians. He stayed there for a year and a half, teaching them and helping establish uh, First Church of Corinth. (coughs) From there, he went to Ephesus, to Antioch, a few other places, He ended up uh, back in Ephesus where he helped establish the church in Ephesus. Well, while he's in Ephesus, major trade route, and people are traveling back and forth, and Paul gets wind of the the fact that things are a real mess in Corinth. Uh, So from Ephesus, he wrote a series of letters to the church in Corinth, two of which we have in the Scriptures. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about all sorts of things, um, how to view and deal with sexual immorality, which was rampant in their culture, and even in their church, much resembling our day. Um, There's instruction for marriage. There is instruction for how to deal uh, with divisions in the church. There's talk about spiritual gifts and the Lord's Supper and uh, the great love chapter, chapter 13. But here in chapter 15, nearing the end of the letter, Paul takes them back to the beginning of his ministry with them. Verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel the good news I preached to you. Uh, The gospel that he preached when he first stepped foot in Corinth and nobody knew who he was and and all that. So in verse 3 and following, Paul gives us some insight into the content of the gospel. But before we get there, there's a couple important things to see in verse 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the gospel is not only for the past, it's also for the present as well as for the future. In verse 2 where it says, uh, by which you are being saved, the the tense is actually a future tense, so it would better read, by which you will be saved in the future, if you hold fast to the gospel that I preach to you. Um, 
don't let that give you heartburn. We tend to think about being saved only in terms of the past. We got saved when we believed the gospel. And there's a very important sense in which that's true. Uh, when we first believe the gospel, we are justified, we are made right with God forever, and in that sense we have already been saved. But there's a, another important sense in which we have not yet been saved. Uh, we're not yet in glory. So the Corinthians received the gospel in the past. Uh, they're still standing in the gospel at the time of his writing, he says, and they are sure to arrive in glory in the future if they continue believing the same gospel that he preached in the past. So the point I want you to see is simply that Paul talks about the gospel in the past, the gospel for the present, and the gospel for the future. Uh, in verse 3, Paul says that when he came to Corinth as a missionary, uh, the gospel was delivered as of first importance. So if they were going to get anything, they had to get this. But that doesn't mean it was only important then. So after talking about all these other things throughout the letter, Paul takes them back to where they started with the gospel that he delivered of first importance and which remains of utmost importance. Simply, the gospel is not just for the uh, beginning of the Christian life. The gospel is for the entire Christian life. In fact, it is the fuel for the entire Christian life. It's It's what brought us in. It sustains us now. It's what will get us home. So what is the gospel? We see that in verses 3 through 6. I'll read that again. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. The gospel, simply put, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Burial is mentioned in there as well, which really just serves to show the fact that the death and resurrection are literal history. He literally died. He was literally buried in a literal tomb. He literally rose from death from the literal tomb where he was literally buried. Um, And again, this week, we'll focus on the death. Next week, resurrection. I want to focus on that statement, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, that statement, in accordance with the Scriptures, is is a reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, We talk about this a lot, but we can't understand the significance of Jesus' death uh, without seeing its connection to the Old Testament Scriptures. His death is in accordance with the Scriptures. So all of the Gospel accounts, if you read through them this week, you'll see that they're all filled with Old Testament references um, because the death of Jesus was in accordance with the Old Testament Scriptures. It was a fulfillment of those Scriptures. One example, just before He died, Jesus said, I thirst. So someone filled a sponge with sour wine and gave it to Him to drink. Now, was this just someone being mean? Um, or was there more to it than that? Well, Psalm 69.21, written about a thousand years before this, says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So, this is pointing to something that was prophesied way back in the Psalms. Jesus' death was in accordance with the Scriptures. So as we read the New Testament account of Jesus' death, The New Testament is constantly pointing us back 
uh, to the Old Testament so we can better understand the significance. So I want to spend some time in the Old Testament today to that end. Familiar passage, uh, one that we certainly need to think of this time of year. Turn to Exodus 12. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus 12. Uh, Exodus 12 is about the institution of the Passover in Israel. And uh, the connection between the Passover and Jesus' death is one that we're definitely supposed to pick up on as we read the Gospels. You may not know that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He was eating the Passover meal with His disciples. He died during Passover week. So uh, all of the Gospels point us to that fact. So let's read a little bit about the institution of Passover. And... Uh, yeah. Uh, wow. Where was I? Exodus 12. Remember, uh, remember that the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for some 400 years. God sent Moses to get the people of Israel out of Egypt, but Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not let them go. Uh, so God sent many plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt. And at this point, the last plague has just been threatened. The death of every firstborn in Egypt, including uh, man and beast. But God is going to make a way for this plague not to uh, affect His people. Israel, the plague will pass over His people. Exodus 12, I'll read a few verses starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Look at uh, second part of verse 11. Uh, it says, And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Look, uh, end of the chapter, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. Uh, Verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Okay, so each household needs a lamb, but not just any lamb. It's got to be a lamb without blemish, a spotless lamb. They're to sacrifice the lamb. They're to put the blood around the door. 
Uh, when God passes through Egypt to kill the firstborn from <coughs> Egypt, He's going to see the blood of the Lamb and He's going to pass over uh, His people. And not only were His people to eat this meal for the Exodus, uh, but, but the Passover meal was a memorial for them. It was a feast that they kept throughout the years, every year, for, uh, throughout the generations. So every year they would sacrifice a spotless lamb, they would make sure not to break any of its bones, uh, they would see the blood, they would remember the exodus when God's punishment passed over His people because of the unblemished, unbroken lamb. Now turn to John 19. John chapter 19. As I've already said, uh, we're going to read about the crucifixion. This is the week of Passover. It's a connection we're supposed to make between the Passover and Jesus' death. John 19, starting in 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also for His tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, They divided My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. Here again, you see that we, we look at the death of Jesus, and it's in accordance with the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, look at... Uh, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. Is what we talked about earlier. That's uh, Psalm 69.21. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Um... Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Why would they want to break the legs of the guys on the cross? Speed it up. Because it's taken forever and they can still support themselves, but if you break their legs, they can no longer support themselves and the asphyxiation, they're now slumped and they will not be able to breathe. So they break their legs uh, to speed up death. So, verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, there's great significance to the fact that they did not break Jesus' legs. What is it? The unbroken lamb. It's Passover week. He had just eaten the Passover meal with His disciples where they would have sacrificed a spotless lamb, spilling His blood. They would have been very careful not to break His bones. And here is Jesus, dead on the cross, blood spilled, bones not broken. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The one to whom the Passover lamb for all of those years and all of those generations pointed. He was perfect, spotless, blameless, Without sin, He was sacrificed, spilling His blood. And remember that the significance of the Passover lamb was that God would look to the blood and His punishment would pass over His people. So in the same way, God views those of us who have faith in Christ through the lens of the blood of Jesus. 
God sees the blood of the Lamb and passes us over. Uh, In the best meaning of that word, passes over, punishing us. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus arrives on the scene, uh, when when He first showed up for His ministry? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Our sin has earned us God's punishment, but because the Lamb was sacrificed in our place, His punishment passes us by. Jesus' blood covers us. God views us through the lens of the blood. You know, the Passover is just one of the many places in the Old Testament that lead us to the death of Christ. Um, Dr. Young's study right now in Communion Sundays is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. We've talked about that recently. That day every year where the high priest would make sacrifices to atone for the sin of God's people. But again, that was just a foreshadowing. If those sacrifices were sufficient to fully atone for the sin of God's people, they wouldn't have to have been offered every year. That's one of the main arguments in the book of Hebrews. The animal sacrifices were just a foreshadowing of the once-for-all sacrifice, which was a once-for-all payment of the sins of God's people. Or Isaiah 53, another well-known passage foreshadowing Jesus, the prophecy of of the suffering servant, spoken again hundreds of years before Christ, but clearly spoken about Christ. Just listen to this. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities or sins. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him, not on us, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is of first importance, Paul says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. First importance. Uh, Think for a minute just about how God set it up. How God made sure that we would keep the gospel of first importance. So... um, this is like putting it on a tee, but before Jesus, what was the central ceremonial meal for God's people? The Passover. Uh, once a year for almost 1,500 years before Christ. After Christ, what is the uh, central ceremonial meal? The Lord's Supper. They didn't skip any time in between. The, the Lord's Supper was instituted at the Passover meal. Most Christians eat it more than once a year. has been that way for the last 2,000 years. What are these about? The death of Christ. The the Passover foreshadows the death of Christ. It looks forward. The Lord's Supper remembers the death of Christ. It looks back. So ever since Israel came out of Egypt for the last 3,500 years, God's people have corporately shared a meal. Both are about the death of Christ. The Passover looking forward. The Lord's Supper looking back, because the fact that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures is of first importance. And it's not just a message that we received when we became Christians, it's a message that we are sustained by now, and a message that we must cling to in order to make it home to glory. Um, If we're going to sum up 
that message in a word, we could use the last word that Jesus uttered before He died according to John's Gospel. We just read about it. John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished, and bowed His head and gave up His spirit. It is finished, three English words, one Greek word, tetelestai. Now, in the Greek language, the tense of words is of utmost importance. We, I mean, do the same thing in our language, but more so there. Uh, this word, tetelestai, Jesus' last word was spoken in the perfect tense. The perfect tense describes a past action with continuing significance. So it's different than the simple past tense where uh, we just say something happened you know, in the past. The perfect tense is saying something happened that still has abiding significance today and you know, in the future. So not only was it finished in the past, it remains finished in the present, it will remain finished in the future. What is finished? The, the work that Jesus came to do. He came into the world to save sinners. He saved us by dying in our place for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The payment for your sins is complete. It is finished. And every time you face a new one of your sins, remember Jesus' last word. Remember that your sin was paid for then. It is paid for now. It will remain. Uh, it will still be paid for in the future. And here's the thing. Um, if you're not deeply aware of your sin, and not just sin in general, but your sin, and not just sins of the past, but sin of the present, um, if, if we're not deeply aware of our sin, then the beauty and the power of this Gospel will be lost on us. But on the other end of the spectrum, many of us are painfully aware of our sin, and here's the thing. We... Uh, we believe the Gospel for the past. I think we, many of us even have an easier time believing the Gospel for the future. But I think we have a harder time believing the Gospel for the present, for the right now, for the sins that are uh, fresh. You know, I remember when I first received the Gospel and what a great relief it was to know that all of my sins were forgiven. But there have been new sins. And uh, again, what about those sins that are fresh this week or this morning? Tetelestai. Perfect tense. It was finished, it is still finished, and it will still be finished uh, in the future. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. And for those of us that are deeply aware of our sin, both past and present, um, both generally and specifically, we desire change. I do not want to stay like I am. I hate my sin. I hate that my pure thoughts and intentions are polluted by sinful thoughts and intentions. I want to change. But the way to change is not to always be focused on the need to change. Certainly, uh, there are many times when we focus on what needs to be changed, but the fuel that will drive the change is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. It is finished. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God was sacrificed for the sins of His people. So, the way to change is not to remain focused on change. The way to change is to always be remembering Christ and Him crucified again and again. I say with Paul, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the Gospel that has been preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand and by which you will finally be saved into glory as you hold fast to the gospel that was originally preached. It is of first importance. Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we... um, I really think that's true. I think that we have an easier time believing the Gospel for the past and for the future. But... um, this great gospel has abiding significance now. We, we stand in it now. And so I pray that it would be uh, fresh good news. Uh, it's not a, ever a different good news. Lord Jesus, we will always return to You specifically um, to this week that we remember every year where uh, You took our sins in Your body on the tree. And I just pray that the gospel would sink deep into our souls. Um, that we would rest in the provisions that You've made, uh, that we would remember that last word again and again and again. We thank You, Lord. We can never thank You enough, uh, but we, we don't want to get stuck feeling guilty because we can't thank You enough. We want to rest um, in the fact that it's not up to us. It was up to You, and You finished the job. Uh, might that motivate us to deeper higher worship and love and service, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, a few minutes for anyone that has question, thought, wants to make application, question about something we read, question that you think about when you think about the death of Christ. Okay. Have a good day.